If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Today, we'll be looking at chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This means we're almost halfway through this letter. That's the only foretelling I can give at this point. This morning we begin another section of 1 Corinthians dealing with the broader topic of cultural compromises. The same basic theme flows through chapters 8, 9, and 10. And really the question is, how should members of a gospel-shaped community exercise their Christian liberties and privileges? The circumstances which precipitated the question the Corinthian believers asked Paul had to do with whether or not they should or could eat food offered to idols. One commentator joked that he'd never, ever heard of Christians squabbling about whether or not the meat someone brought to the church-covered dish had originally been used in a pagan sacrifice. He thought that was funny, and it is, because we just can't relate to this very well, not in our culture. But even though this is not a question that any of us have probably ever thought about too much or at all, it concerns principles that are very important to understand if we are to navigate living out our faith in a sinful world. Here are a few related questions that might help us see why this was such a serious issue in Corinth. How do we as Christians interact with the non-Christian religions and rituals around us? And yes, many of you are involved in ministries in Amarillo where people of other religions are very, see very prevalent ceremonies and rituals that we could say are similar to what these people saw in Corinth. And how can we go to non-Christian religious ceremonies, or can we, and participate in their rituals? Can we dress like pagans if they wear identifiable clothing associated with their views and practices? Can we identify in any sense with pagan elements in the surrounding culture? And what about consuming any leftovers from ritual meals? Is doing such a thing participating in paganism and a violation of God's prohibition of idolatry? Now, There's some background information that we've got to remember here. We've gone through background information every once in a while as we've gone through this letter so far. We need to again, um, because while we may understand why Christians should have nothing to do with idolatry, it's probably harder for us to understand how issues of food can be so directly connected to pagan practices. In the first century world, of course we know there was no refrigeration 
which means any butchered animal meat had to be eaten soon afterward. And in the Greco-Roman culture, meals were commonly eaten in pagan temples or trade guild halls, dining halls, which were dedicated to pagan deities. And in these gatherings, a sacrifice to the deity in that temple or hall, the hall that was dedicated to that particular pagan deity, included the sacrifice or burnt animal and other food items offered to the gods. And that's how those events usually began. And what was left of the other food items was then eaten by those present. Now, usually much of the meat was sold to local butchers for resale, and other portions were eaten by the priests and socially connected participants who were a part of these gatherings. Now, it was hard for upper Gentile society people to avoid these kind of meals and the gathering places they were held. Why? Why would it be hard for them to avoid? Because they were the centers of commerce, and they were the centers of social activities, and they were the centers of people connections. And if you were up-and-coming Gentile person in whatever business, you went to these things, and if you didn't, you didn't have a clue what was going on in your own city. And the connections would hurt your business if you didn't make them or keep them updated. When you can walk everywhere in a town, maybe we could understand it. In some of the big cities in the east that were built with less transportation available when they were first put up, of course you can get around. Trains connect everything. Out here in the middle of nowhere, if you want to build something, you just kind of look farther out. There's space. Put it up, which means we've got to get in something to get everywhere we go. So we have a hard time understanding this. But where you can walk, literally, from wherever you live to these dining halls and to the various temples that were in Corinth, that's your social life as well as your religious life. And we need to understand that if we're going to get what Paul is saying here in our text. So, the connections between the pagan deity and the contents of the meal were hard to miss. There are still some modern-day clubs that have questionable connections to whoever they believe is God. Secret societies that may do the same thing. So we, we've got to see that this, was, this is not something new for them, and it's even still going on to some degree in the Western world. So it should be easy to see why Christians, especially Gentile Christians, would be asking if they should participate in those activities. That's what they're concerned about. How could Christians justify eating in pagan temples or eating something which was offered to a pagan god? 
They're only asking this because evidently many of the Corinthian church were participating. An additional quandary is seen when you factor in the plight of the poor who couldn't afford meat. That may be hard for us to understand as well. Their only option was the very cheap or even free meat left over from these pagan sacrifices, which was available where all the butcher shops were located outside the place of sacrifice. There wasn't a butcher shop on the east side, the west side, the north side. They were all in one place. If you wanted meat, there was a row of butcher shops, and they were usually right outside one of the temples or one of these dining halls, right in that same area. So you go there to get some leftovers. How do you know whether any of that was part of the sacrifice to a pagan god? Do you see the quandary? And these were poor people who meat was a luxury edible item. It was not an everyday occurrence. How would you know if the meat you bought had been sacrificed to gods or not? And then what about the Jewish converts to Christianity? They have an issue here? You getting a flavor for this church again? They would have been have much less propensity to even consider this kind of meat. Why? Because of their background habits of following the Mosaic law about slaughtering animals, whether it was kosher or not. Can you see some disagreements arising amongst the people in this congregation? Yes. Well, if you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's only 13 verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods quotes, and many lords, and quotes. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, Eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. 
thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a fundamental truth behind the Corinthians' question here in verses 1 through 3. Paul is not saying that knowledge is not necessary or that knowledge is bad, etc. Is everyone clear on that? Of all people to think that of, Paul would not be the person. He is the one that lays out theology systematically, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, teaching us what God says about who he is and who we are and how salvation works. He's not denigrating knowledge. He's not saying that it's not necessary or that knowledge is bad. And P.S. in our day and age, it's the opposite problem. In generations and generations before, knowledge was so ingrained in what they knew was right or wrong and who God is and who we are that the real issue was not the knowledge, but loving one another. In our day, we know less and less and less and less, which we're trying to deal with, hopefully, by the many teachers in this church. Because now, everybody just concentrates on what we're doing and who you talk to and let's meet together and I don't know what that verse means, but we'll just go ahead, you know, on and on and on that way with less and less knowledge. So this is kind of an upside down situation, but it sure applies anyway to us. What he's getting at is that knowledge, when not used properly, for the right reason, easily then, what does your text say? Different words here. Puffs up is one of the best because that's what it literally means. It's referring to being overinflated, swollen, distended. A perfect picture of pride. That's the way we are. This word is only used six times in the whole New Testament, all by Paul. Uh, five times here in 1 Corinthians, he's already used it earlier and once in Colossians 2 verse 18. When we are proud of ourselves for knowing stuff or when we use our knowledge of facts or life or processes or even people to get our way or to maneuver to gain power or prestige, we too become a picture of an over-inflated and ready-to-burst prideful person. It's not a pretty picture. Even those whose knowledge puffs them up are reminded in verse 2 that they don't really know as they ought to know, Paul writes. Nobody knows everything they ought to know about anything. It's always room. But Christians who think their own opinions or self-sufficient knowledge allows them to live without a loving regard for their brothers and sisters in Christ, how are they usually described? Cold, 
hard. They may know the facts. They may be the first to raise their hands and answer the questions or to look down upon you and explain this or that or that. But if that has inflated them so much in their pride that they don't demonstrate love for their brothers and sisters in Christ, first and foremost, that is what Paul is going after in this passage. You know what they're in for? Those kind of people are in for terribly hard reality checks all through their life. Because the bottom line is, you may think that people think this about you because of what you know. But when they turn around, they have no respect for you whatsoever. If you've treated them horribly, or if you are arrogant, or if you display any of those kind of prideful attitudes. The contrast to puffed up or prideful knowledge is love which builds up here. Love tempers knowledge in all the right ways when it's primarily concerned with first loving God. In verse 3, if anyone loves God, he's known by God, and God recognizes his own. So what's Paul's point? The goal of our faith is not knowledge for knowledge's sake. Hear me. Not for knowledge for knowledge's sake. Most of us are way too lazy about learning it. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about just getting knowledge so you can use it to increase or make your position more and more powerful. Or you think people think you're smart or whatever it is. It's not knowledge for knowledge's sake, but the goal of our faith is love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's what other people see. That's what makes them ask the questions. What is it with those people? And you act in love based on your knowledge of who God is and what he's done for you. So true true knowledge leads to humility. For genuine love for God flows from God's grace to us. So if humility and love are lacking, that person's knowledge has not been applied correctly. And this is humbling, and folks, that is a good thing to be humbled. We will now see that many Corinthians do know the necessary truths about idols and food, but they are not combining that knowledge with a love for their brethren who are having a difficult time discerning these things. That's the picture of this church. The eating meat offered to idols issue was already a huge problem in the early church and was part of the questions actually taken to the Jerusalem council four or five years before Paul even wrote this letter, but it was concerning a church over in Asia Minor, not a one in Greece. And news traveled slowly, or incidents did. So this is kind of like a second part B. But this question it was already answered by the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And there we read a summary in Acts 15, 28, and 29, where eating meat sacrificed to idols was one of the few restrictions placed upon Gentile believers by the leaders of the church. 
It was a huge issue. Can you see why they would say that? We encourage you not to participate. He was talking to Gentile believers. Why? Because they were so intimately attached to pagan deities. And it was so much a big part of their culture. This offers us some guidelines. And in Revelation 2, verses 14 and 20, the two of the churches that um, Jesus wrote to or spoke to or got sent to, Pergamum and Theatira, they're condemned by Christ for tolerating these pagan practices in their midst. So we need to remember that, too, as we go through here. Now, there's two truths that many of the Corinthians obviously do know that we see in the second paragraph here, verses 4 through 6. In verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that. So you see what Paul has already done? He's finally going to answer the question, but he started off by giving some very important background info and reminding them of a few things. First, an idol has no real existence. And two, that there is no God but one. And all of us are saying, well, we know that. Well, let's see how it applies. The first truth is an echo of a section of Isaiah about the futility of idols and that they are nothing, is what Isaiah says. We read in Isaiah 41, 24, Behold, you, O idol, are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And if you, in many other places, one of them is in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust them. That was rather a lengthy explanation that we probably got in the first sentence. The second truth that many know is that there is no God but one. And this is taken from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. That started off a lot of their prayers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in verses 5 through 6, Paul elaborates concerning this second truth, and he emphasizes the importance of it. He writes, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Do you notice any repetition there? Get to that in a sec. Notice that Paul affirms monotheism as clear as he can. And at the same time, he ascribes the same divine attributes to Jesus as he does to the Father. Namely, that Jesus is the creator of all things and one in whom we live. And these verses then we find in very basic form, the affirmation that there is one God, 
and that within the Godhead there is Father and Son. Paul's already written about the Holy Spirit, Spirit earlier in his letter. Both of these points reflect what the Corinthians had written to him, that they know these truths. So why are they having a problem? Because working out what you know into your daily life in a mixed up, crazy, sinful world is hard. There's two groups in Corinth. And Paul's going to let you see both of them in the rest of this little passage. And he's going to disagree with both. And he's going to give a distinct answer. He already sees what's good about each one. But he's going to really disagree with what they're doing, both of them, and then take a distinct position himself. That's why this is so helpful. So the focus now turns upon the two groups of Corinthian believers. First, I'm going to call them the knowers because that's the word in here. Usually when you read books about conscience issues and liberty, you read what? The what and the weak. The strong and the weak. And immediately it gets people all upset because first thing they're answering is, well, I'm the weak person, but that doesn't sound very good. I'd rather be seen as the strong person. Well, let's see what that mean, looks like. The words in the text are actually know, the ones who know. So I'm going to call them knowers. And those are the ones who believe that eating the food offered to idols is appropriate and allowed. Why? Because food is nothing. It has nothing to do. And we'll see that in a second. And then the second group, he does call the weak, who believe that eating idol food is defiling. So let's figure this out. You're going to have to think a little bit to keep these straight. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. See what's going on here? The point has been made that idols are nothing. But the recent converts from paganism still struggle with this. Why? Because the association between certain foods and idols and the places you were eating and doing all this was so strong. These people were weak in the sense that they didn't feel they could eat this way without defiling themselves. In their minds, eating such things was tolerating or endorsing what? Paganism, the particular deity that this food may have been offered to. They still could not understand fully that idols were nothing. Did you hear that passage? There is no power. They can't talk. Food will not commend us to God, we read in verse 8. Now, some of you may be on some diet that you think is God-ordained. I would think twice about that. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. In other words, it's up to you. 
Paul gets to the heart of the issue here, saying we're no worse off if we don't eat and no better off if we do eat. In other words, the eating of food belongs to a category called indifferent things, meaning food does not bring us closer to God and neither does it bring us under God's judgment, period. It's an individual decision. By the way, what did Jesus say about it? Matthew and Mark 7, he said, he said to them, then you also are without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. And who had a problem with that later? One of the twelve. Peter, and God in his grace, actually had to give him a picture of it. And he still had problems with it. This is tough. But even though this is true, the knowers should not insist that the weak eat what they do. Neither should the weak demand or insist that the knowers abstain from things they would need themselves. This is Paul's, this is, I thought this was kind of funny. I'd never really seen this before, but several commentators said that Paul had a, quote, mind your own business doctrine. And it's true. I looked up all the verses where he talks about this, and it's, it's very evident. Uh, two of them are in Thessalonians. Mind your own affairs is how he says it. But in verse 9, take care that this right or liberty, is the way uh, you could say that as well, NAS is liberty of yours. Take care or be careful that this right or liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged in his, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak. Who do you sin against? Christ himself. And here in verse 9, we find a very important caution, don't we? The knowers whose conscience is not bothered at all by this scenario know that idols are nothing. And so they must also act in accordance with love towards the weak brothers and sisters in Christ. Even though they know that the idol's nothing and the food doesn't make any difference. In other words, if they truly do have this knowledge, then they would understand that they assume all responsibility in knowing when to set aside their liberty for the sake of those who, as of yet, do not under, truly understand or fully understand, or they don't have the proper theological categories to think through these things biblically. And many times that is the case. Judge completely by the great memories you had, or and now you realize they were way off, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't have the biblical categories to say, no, that was wrong. But that makes no difference 
to my relationship to God. And so I need to be careful about this. And that's what we hope to grow towards. In verses 10 and 11, Paul describes a, a practical implication of what could happen. Someone who is weak might be encouraged to eat and violate their own conscience. Then they might think that they could profess, profess Christ and still engage in all sorts of pagan activities. And we've seen, maybe we have done this, maybe we've seen other people do this. Or their conscience could become horribly and needlessly burdened over things that are indifferent, like food. And they're completely enslaved here. And this is what Paul is describing by using the word destroyed. This doesn't mean they could lose their salvation, but rather that their spiritual development could be severely damaged. That's what that is talking about. We also see in verse 12 that sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak means that the knower also sins against Christ. And that is the most bothersome thing of all. So what is Paul's conclusion? One that we don't like. Why? Because we're Americans. We can do whatever we want. Even worse, we're Texans. We've proved we can do anything we ever want. We were a country. That's all great. But if it hinders this attitude, then we've, we've got to ask God to help us change it. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And to avoid this kind of problem in the first place, Paul says that he is perfectly willing to give up his right or his liberty, which means what he's free to do. It would be interesting I thought about this, but it didn't last very long because it'd be ridiculous. But I thought about taking a secret poll sometime and asking how many people have actually been free to do something that is not sin. It's in this indifferent category. And you didn't because of your love for another brother or sister in Christ. And just to see what people said, I think that'd be really interesting to find out. Of course, anonymous. But don't worry about it. We won't do it. So although the knower must never give up Christian liberty liberty in the face of Judaizers or Pharisees, everybody hear that? The, the Judaizers in this time in history were the ones following the missionaries around saying, no, you had to be circumcised or you are not a Christian. In other words, it was the gospel plus something. Plus something. And Paul said pronounced anathema on the, on the guys teaching these things. That's not one you go, well, okay, I don't want to offend you, so we'll, I just won't do anything. No, those guys you stand up to. Anybody that adds something to the gospel. Who else? Pharisees. Many of the Pharisees were part of the Judaizers, but they were the ones who were puffed up. And there's all sorts of stories in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, that show how Jesus dealt with those guys. Jesus' harshest words 
were reserved for the Pharisees because they were the ones claiming to know God and know his book, but they were the ones who were using the poor and the disabled and the unlearned in order to advance their what they thought was their own visages, their own reputations. That's who we stand up against. But we do not do that or think about this with our brothers and sisters in Christ that are suffering under these things. So, even though we never give up our Christian liberty in the face of Judaizers and Pharisees or like-minded people, the knower should always be willing to give up Christian liberty for the sake of the weaker brother or sister who is struggling with leaving pagan practices behind. Do you guys realize how much of a pagan influence our society is now exhibiting? In Sunday school, it's called We're Living on the Vapor Trails of the Christian. That is so true. It's almost gone. So what are we going to see? We're going to see people coming to Christ who have been enslaved in this area, enslaved in that area. They still are. They're, and it's great attachments. And we have got to be really smart and wise biblically to know how to minister to them, which means a whole lot of people may be giving up their rights and liberties in order so that these brothers and sisters will not stumble. The other side of this coin is the commitment and follow-through by the knowers to engage in instruction so that the weak become stronger. And you don't do that by cramming it down their throat. You do it by exhibiting the love and having times of conversation wherever in formal settings and informal settings where you go over Scripture itself and let God inside be the one to change that guy's heart. And let him see, yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't be worrying about this. And then that person will be the one who all of a sudden recognizes his freedom. And then he realizes, oh, man, I can't do that with these buddies. I can't engage in that with my buddies. Because I know that they are more enslaved to that than I was. I want to tell them about Christ and the freedom they have to know forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera. And the cycle goes on, but it gets, it's hard, and it's going to be harder. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. These are very challenging words, as usual, in this particular letter. Um, We pray that you'd sear them on our hearts, that we would be willing to see areas that we may know and areas that we may may be weak. And we pray that uh, the love for you would be so overwhelming because of your grace to us that we would want to extend that to others and be diligent in our growing knowledge of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have a special presentation by some people that are related. Blake, it's all yours.